Greetings, dear listeners. Another four days, and the war in Ukraine is still going on. Shadi and I sat down again to look at where things are and where things could be going. We talk best and worst-case scenarios, why we can't get militarily involved, and why the West is so white-hot furious about this war. We cut this episode in two. The second half of the conversation is for paying subscribers only. Please consider becoming a member over at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to hear the whole conversation. Hope you find it interesting. Where, Shadi, do you want to take this? Um, I'm I'm interested in hearing where you're at now because I feel I haven't seen you in a couple days. Yeah. Or I haven't talked to you in in a couple days. I guess since the last podcast episode. So, I mean, I see your text messages, I see your tweets, but I don't have a great sense of where your headspace is right now. So why don't you just tell uh, tell me and our dear listeners, how, how do you feel about um, everything going on in Ukraine? I feel now? like, I feel like, I feel like, uh, like I have the analog of, uh, of Putin. I've been stuck in a bunker this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but you to, haven't though. Talking to no one. Yeah, right. Putin doesn't tweet. It's true. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, that's what, what, uh, what most people would like to, uh, to know right now is, is, uh, what the hell, what the hell's on Putin's mind as much as anything else. Um, where I'm at, uh, as we're recording this, uh, I guess it's Monday, February 28th. It's probably worth noting that, uh, we'll try and turn this around pretty quickly. At six thirty um, PM. At six twenty PM. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but I'm just giving us some room for giving us some while. Here. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> hopefully we will record more than ten minutes. And in, in any case, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, a, a lot's happened. It's um, well. Here, let me let me flip it around this way, rather than me trying to recap everything that's happened. Um, as someone who is, you know, following the news, and someone who is uh, an educated. Uh, person who follows the news. No, 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 I mean, you know what I mean. Like you're, you're, you're one of the 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 blob in a lot of ways. Um, where do you think we're at? Like, what's what's in? You know, I mean, you're not you're not focusing on this. What's filtering down to you, and and where do you think we're at? Because that's something. You know, since I'm in a Putin-like bunker, mental bunker, sort of like living and breathing this stuff, I'm just sort of curious mm. to know like what what is uh, what's filtering out to. You know, not normies. You're not. You're not. You're not a, a Midwesterner or anything like but that. Educated but educated like, observers, an educated who care. observer who who care, but you know, have other things going on. What's where? Where do you think we're at? Yeah, yeah. So I haven't been following very closely in the last twenty four to forty eight hours, um, in part because um, I was teaching my Georgetown seminar earlier today, so that took up most of my day. And that was about a completely different set of issues yeah. um, about uh, Algeria and, and Islamist parties in Algeria and Palestine and them coming to power mm. and how we feel about that. So quite different. So let me try to just shift gears. And okay, so my sense is that it's going to get worse and there's no sign that Putin is holding back or is willing to compromise. I had maybe some faint hopes that the talks in Belarus along the border might lead to at least a pause in fighting. 
that doesn't appear to be the case. Nope. And, you know, it's, it's hard for me to imagine Putin backing down now. He's gone this far. Knowing, I mean, having a sense of the kind of person he is and knowing that type of personality, including in the Middle East, I know those are the kinds of people that are preoccupied with honor and shame and perception and perception of strength and manliness. And they can't apologize. They can't back down. I know those kinds of people. Yeah. Not to say that they're just only or primarily in the Middle East, but there is a certain kind of like strong man mentality that I personally have seen quite a bit in the Middle East because of the work that I do. And I don't, I don't really see the scenario where Putin says, I'm done. Right. Yeah. I, I hope I'm wrong. And maybe I just haven't thought through the various scenarios where that comes to be. I, so I would like you to maybe offer a, a glimmer of hope, hope if you can. But if you can't, that's good for us to know, too. No, that's I, I, a good place to start, I guess. Um, but what do you think about what I said? Does that sound like a, like a somewhat accurate analysis of where things are at? Yes, um, but I think it's maybe important for that very question to um, pick apart the idea of Putin, you know, and this like pride question from, um, I think you're right because he is a strong man. And I mean, it, you know, it, especially in the lead up to this war, the way it was decided, um, it really was uh, very much, you know, almost a personal decision and I, if you remember, I forget if we talked about it in the last episode, he, he, he had his entire national security apparatus around him, and he basically, before the invasion, made them all publicly commit to the invasion. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, clearly he wants everyone involved, implicated, basically, in the decision. Um, so uh, it's, it is very personalized. But I think the, 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 the really troubling thing while admitting that it's all personalized, it's not just about personality on this. It's that um, he's committed himself to a war that uh, he may not be able to win um, and that he may not be able to step down from. I was, I was tweeting this um, this weekend, uh, Saturday maybe? No, Sunday. When did he start? I think it was Sunday that he started uh, rattling the nuclear stuff uh, a bit. Um, the really striking thing about this and why I think it's so uh, it's going to be very difficult for him to climb down is that um, the entire sort of uh, cachet of Russia in international relations its ability to get its way uh, has, you know, over the last, uh, you know, I don't know what, 15 years, uh, been built up um, largely because he's been willing to commit troops and get things done, you know, by his yeah. terms, his violent terms. Um, and largely because I think he's completely miscalculated this, uh, this war. Uh, the kind of assumptions that clearly seem to have gone in 
Um, you know, in your Monday note, which should be publishing any second now as we record, um, there's a link. Did we include it? I think the link to uh, to this one really remarkable thread by yeah. Thomas DeWall, um, which is an exposition of a an article which was published, mispublished, still remains on one of the major Russian news services sites, uh, which is an article which uh, that 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 talks about as if the war had won. So they mispublished it, you know, thinking that that in fact, you know, it had gone the way they they thought it would, and it lays out the sort of justifications for uh, for the war, and it, it's 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 deeply. Deeply, um, you can see that if that was the justification or that was the thought process of going in, uh, you know, there, there's, you can see why the war is going so badly for them, basically, because it was just very divorced from that. The fact that the war is going so badly and continues to go so badly really diminishes the, uh, the sense of competence, uh, the sense of the country being able to get its way. So it's not just personal loss of faith, uh, face. Uh, it's, and it's not that you know he uh, can't just sort of withdraw and uh, make up some story at home. It's not just that, you know, perhaps uh, the loss of face internationally will would hurt him personally. He might get, might have trouble holding on to power outside of it. It's that this mistake, I think, has is really. Uh, shown the limits of what Russia is capable of. And if they pull out of this um, reasonably, and I think that that, and we can talk about reasonably, but I, I think that that if, if there's a, um, if they were to do something that wouldn't be catastrophic for, for Russia, and never mind Ukraine, it's already been catastrophic for Ukraine, but that would, would sort of spare the, 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 the worst scenarios, um, no matter what, I think Russia comes out greatly diminished from this. Not morally diminished, but but diminished as an actor in the world. Um, yeah. And and I think that's really hard. Um, and that's not a personality defect. It's it's very much about everything that he's you know been working towards. It's it's the whole sort of Putinist project is is restoring Russia, never mind geographically and mystically to this imperial thing, but to its what what he perceives its right rightful role in the world. And I think what we're seeing in a lot of ways is that. Um, you know, that miscalculation has laid bare the limits that Russia, at least in conventional weapons, uh, what it's able to achieve. Um, and I think that no matter how this works out from here on out, I think that's set in stone that um, Russia is going to be uh, now widely seen as very much a second rate power. And the paradox there, it's a second-rate power with nuclear weapons with ambitions to have, like, much greater sway in the world. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's an important thing for people to keep in mind here, is that this is not just about Putin in a lot of ways. It's about the entire project that, due to a, um, a uh, miscalculation, and this is, this is where I think the, the question of reason, but I think, like, a, a misunderstanding of what he was getting himself into, like a really bad screw-up, um, has really put him in a bad corner uh, from that thing. And that's, I think that's the trouble we're in right now. Okay, that makes sense to me. But what if he succeeds on a longer timeline, so it'll be more difficult and longer than expected, but he still ends up um, 
ousting the current government and installing a Putin-friendly regime and basically wins in that particular sense in, say, I don't know, a week, two weeks, who knows. If he's able to do that and impose his will, even if it comes at considerable cost and casualties for the Russian military, but he still gets his end goal, which is installing installing a friendly regime, then how, how does that change the assessment? Because that's ultimately what he wants. So if he still gets there. Okay. Um, so many ways to take that. Um, I think the assessment right now, and that could change, but the assessment right now, stemming from what I was saying earlier, that uh, in conventional terms, uh, the Russians have come up quite short. Um, and again, like I said, the reason this could change, and there's a lot of sort of conflicting analysis about this, that you know he hasn't yet been trying and that could, it could get a lot more brutal. And I think that's what, again, uh, the, the and I, I hesitate to say this, but like the, the not worst, but quite likely uh, scenario for the next week or two is that um, it will get a whole lot bloodier as he commits more of his conventional military uh, strength. Um, but even if he were to commit all of it, I think the, the thinking now is um, that the Ukrainians have enough uh, of a uh, sort of wind at their back um, and uh, and a sense they've they've tasted blood, they've tasted weakness, and they have a sense of confidence. I think that at minimum they can uh, keep him from, you know, maybe taking Kiev. Uh, certainly, how do they do that? Uh, I mean, uh, they're dug in. Almost every person in uh, well, no, I don't want to overstate it. I don't know the numbers, uh, but they've handed out. Uh, tens and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of, of machine guns to people. They've set up barricades. They're preparing for urban warfare. They're preparing yeah. for that kind of grinding conflict. So the thing is, uh, and you know, uh, Russia has been sending these sort of special forces into Kiev to try and find Zelensky and kill him. Um, and even if they succeed and kill Zelensky, it's not clear that that doing that would end uh, this this uprising. Um, I was reading an analysis today, uh, which I think a lot of people got wrong, myself included. Uh, I'm not a military analyst, but, you know, I, I certainly, I, I, I assume that the Ukrainians, you know, that they'd have spirit because just talking to Ukrainians, they said, oh, no, 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 we'll fight. We'll fight to the very last. And I said, well, look, okay, to myself and even in, in conversations, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you will fight very well and bravely, but, you know, it's the Russian military machine. Um, but what I, I didn't fully appreciate is the extent to which uh, the war since 2014 has basically trained up a whole slew of, uh, of Ukrainians. And I think the number was something, uh, 400,000, 500,000 uh, that have actually, you know, cycled through to the, the front. And, and the, that's something that people do wow. forget about is that, you know, there's been a, a semi-live front uh, since 2014 between the occupied parts of Ukraine and uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the free parts, the, the parts that aren't daily shelled. But, you know, most military, well, hundreds of thousands of military-aged men have, have had combat, have had training, and they've been in the trenches facing the Russians. Now, this is not trench, this is not warfare that they're, 
uh, shooting at each other all the time. But, you know, I mean, if you're following this conflict over years, uh, you know, every every so often a Ukrainian serviceman is killed because uh, there's constant stuff going on over there. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's one of the things that I think was everyone overestimated Russian capacity and underestimated Ukrainian capacity. And that's, I think, part of what we're seeing right now, you know? Hmm. So, hmm. Uh, so that's, I think, what would prevent uh, that. And I think what, what, what points to the uh, likelihood that even if they manage to get Zelensky, I'm not sure Putin can like, even achieve that goal of installing some sort of uh, puppet government. Um, our friend Peter Pomerantsev argued that to me from the beginning, that the Ukrainians would never stand for it. But I, I imagined what that would look like would be, you know, endless street protests, a couple of a handful of sort of, you know, uh, clever guerrillas that would blow up cars and you'd have something more like uh, like Ireland, you know, or, or some kind of that kind of, of of simmering, unstable occupation, if you will, if you will, yeah. you know, and that that could be sustainable. I'm not sure that's sustainable anymore. So that goal is out of reach, I think, for the Russians at this point. And so, you know, you asked me for, for a, uh, a, a happy scenario, and we can even spin that out, like what that means more broadly and geopolitically. But like a happy scenario is that Putin realizes this. Uh, again, it's not clear what kind of intel he's getting. Maybe he's convinced that his generals and his, his uh, staff are, are cowardly and, you know, risk averse, and he's pushing them to do more. Uh, you know, correctly, he assesses that they haven't leaned into it yet. They haven't started indiscriminately bombing. They haven't really used their air force properly yet. Um, that they can do a whole lot more, uh, and by a whole lot more means a whole lot more killing and cruelty uh, to to turn the tide. So, you know, maybe he he hasn't yet seen what he's up against, or he feels like he hasn't tried hard enough to, and he thinks he can still break it. Uh, but the 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 you know the the best case would be if he realized this as soon as possible um, and settled for pulling back, um, occupying the uh, and expanding the he's already conquered a good chunk of territory uh, between Crimea uh, and the other occupied parts, the Luhansk and, Do and Donetsk uh, oblasts that he oblasts or regions that he's partially occupied. Um, that he worked, was to do that, he could declare that he has saved the you know much the long suffering Russian people from impending NATO slash fascist genocide or whatever the hell his uh, his uh, his narrative is. He could say that that in fact the um, uh, the forces of the West uh, have been supporting the fascists in Kiev, and Kiev remains. Uh, a fascist occupied city. This is not the end of the fight, but you know we're retreating right now. Um, and say that he's done the minimum, and uh, then sort of like dig back in and and do that, you know. And he probably survived that. Uh, I think that's the best case scenario. Um, whether that's likely to come to pass uh, is interesting. The complicating factors of that, you know, not coming to pass now is the fierce reaction from the West across the West to this and the, the kind of sanctions that have been put on, um, including sanctioning the central bank, uh, you know, and it's so broad. It's, it's, never, it's never been, I think, attempted at this level. The, you know, the Russian economy had 
really just a historically horrific day today. Stocks didn't trade. Uh, they put capital controls so people couldn't even get money, their money out or in. Um, mm. It's uh, uh, and I, I just before we started recording, I saw that the International Criminal Court is opening uh, proceedings or at least an investigation into the war. So one could imagine that given his sort of unhinged speech at the beginning of this, they could, you know, even start thinking about opening up uh, uh, prosecutions for genocide. So, you know, part of it is, you know, he could do that. Uh, he could declare victory and go back to, to that. But, but so much has ruptured in the course of the last, you know, four days. Um, so many things have, so many uh, steps have been taken in reaction um, that, that, you know, it's, it's, the question becomes is what exactly is he going back to, you know? Um, and that's the other, the question sort of lingering in all of this is, is how does that affect his calculus? A lot of sort of, you know, realist people, um, and mind you, I, I'm not in that camp yet, uh, but, you know, just, I think it's a, it's a, a fair argument and it's, it's, it's worth hearing, um, is the, the argument that, you know, he needs to be uh, given an off-ramp of some sort, that, uh, we need to get like show him a way to quit this madness um, and and you know give him inducements to do so um, but it's it's striking the extent to how quickly and how far a lot of this is gone uh, that I wonder whether whether you know those inducements are credible anymore and you know exactly what is he going back to if he backs down you know um, yeah anyway it's a good okay well. One scenario that I'm just thinking about is, let's say there's a siege of, of of Kiev that lasts for, say, two months. And we have, so this has already just been five or six days. Four, and it I think, seems, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah. And it already feels like it's been happening for a very long time. Like a lot has happened. Yeah. And it reminds me of uh, Lenin's quote. What did Lenin say? Uh, I am the walrus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. So, Lenin, this is Vladimir Lenin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not John. He's, he said, there are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. Hmm. It's yes. a good quote. It is. And whoever I retweeted that from also said that it's maybe misattributed, but yes. Oh, yeah. It's one of those things that where, you know, Churchill's responsible for all the great quotes so i wouldn't be surprised if lenin is... stole that from churchill <laughs> he stole that from churchill yeah so so it already feels like history is happening and has happened and will never quite be the same again in various ways certainly europe hmm. will probably not be the same and we can talk about that either today or in a future episode but um so if there's two more months of this nonstop attention, I'm just putting that out there as a just a number that we can, we can sort of consider for yeah. a siege. Yeah. And I think there's been, you know more about sieges in, in the Croatian case. And I think that you had tweeted about one, uh, the Serbs had um, laid siege to a Croatian town and it lasted for quite some time, Three months, even yeah. though it was a small, a relatively small town, right? Yep, yep. yep. What's it called, the city? Uh, Vukovar. And it's a it's it's one of those emblematic battles in in Croatia's war uh, during the 1990s. That city was completely leveled, and it was one of these like David and Goliath things. It was a small handful of people 
you know, defending with some training, but, you know, not, not professionals. A lot of people just sort of figuring it out as they went along, and it was tanks in the city. And the city was leveled, like completely leveled. It was like basically Dresden, uh, the statistics in there, how many, you know, rounds per day were fired into the city. We're, but incidentally, we're not even close to that right now with what Russia's doing, which also tells you, you know, how, how far this could go. But yeah. Yeah. So, well, one thing about sieges is that they can be effective over a long time period, but they also basically force everyone who's left to fight. Yeah. That if you're in that context, you're pretty much taking up arms if you're an able-bodied person, right? Yeah. So it, it does escalate things considerably, and then people are willing to fight t- uh, to the last man, so to speak. Yep. Um, or woman in this case, because obviously, I mean, men and women are taking up arms in in very large numbers. So, but I wonder how the world, the world, um, the the so-called international community will react if there is a a leveling of Kiev where we're talking about tens of thousands of people killed in broad daylight. I don't really know how to imagine that because it's not something that we've... Well, we have seen it in Europe, but in the 1990s, but it's, it's, it's still pretty hard for a lot of us to imagine it. And in that case, of course, there was an option of um, Western, Western military action against the Milosevic regime. Like in this case, we don't really have the option of, of, of using military force against Putin or establishing a no-fly zone or using air power, so on and so forth. So we don't actually know what it looks like if you have a major power deciding to just destroy and massacre a city. And it's I, w- I wonder what that will look like if it unfolds over months or even weeks for that matter. I mean, how, well, maybe that's a question for you. I mean... What do you think the international response looks like? It's already been a pretty strong response thus far without having mass killings and without a siege of a major European city. So where do we go from here in terms of the Western response? I mean, how many more cards do we have? So um, I think there's two ways to look at it, and they're very different. Um, One is maybe strategic and maybe prescriptive, like what can we do? Uh, and the other one is what I'm, what I've watched happen over the last four or five days. We can sort of try and draw inferences from it. Um, let's start with the sort of strategic one. Uh, it's something I've believed, uh, again, I don't remember what I said in the last episode, uh, but I, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something I've believed to be, uh, sort of inevitable. Um, and I, I simply didn't find the words to be able to write it in a way that's not uh that's not quite as ghoulish as the reality of it um wes mitchell who used to uh who works at the marathon initiative with uh, with uh, our former guest uh, bridge colby wrote an essay for foreign policy about it um i don't have it up here in front of me but it's something about you know uh russia's invasion of ukraine uh provides a strategic opportunity um and as you can imagine, you know, what that is, is basically we can't do a lot for the Ukrainians. Uh, it seemed to me for a while that we'd probably end up here. Uh, I, I didn't imagine it would play out like this. I didn't, I didn't really appreciate uh, Putin's worldview and how grounded a lot of his, uh, this whole thing is in it. But I, I assumed that we were probably heading for something like this. 
Um, and and the inability to do anything uh, like no-fly zones, like you know pushing back the aggressor and stuff like that in traditional ways, uh, it seemed obvious to me. And what what West Mitchell argues is that um, if the war goes bad for the Russians, and I think it's you know he wrote this uh, you know days before the invasion started, and I don't think he would have imagined that it would have gone this this badly at least in the these early phases. Um, and the deeper the Russians get and the more intractable they find the conflict, that strategically speaking, that's quite good for us, us, the West, or, you know, anyone opposed to the Putin regime. It's yeah. uh, they can't back down. Uh, they can't win. Uh, and they keep committing. Now, obviously, uh, unsaid in all of this is that, uh, you know, the Ukrainians are going to have to suffer um, for this strategy to be worked through. Again, uh, no one asked for this war. No one goaded the Russians into this war. No one provoked them into it. So, you know, if you want to make uh, moral claims about it and have a moral argument about it, um, I don't think it's an immoral uh, approach, especially given that uh, there's, no, there's no real alternative to what we can or can't do uh, for the Ukrainians at this point. Um, as you mentioned already, in fact, the Russians and Ukrainians are negotiating. They had a, a, a marathon session today, um, and there are demands being made of the Ukrainians. There's not the demands are no longer being made of the West to do X, Y, and Z to prevent this. It's he wants the Ukrainians to do certain things. So again, what what can we do about that? Uh, but what we have been doing, uh, I think, can be extended well into the future. Uh, depending on several things, including, you know, nuclear threats from Russia, but we can get into that, uh, is basically to keep arming them. Um, if they want to fight, uh, we will make sure that they can fight and uh, take as many Russians with them as they do. Uh, the fact that they've proven to be more capable and more able to, to extract losses uh, and perhaps even credibly hold Kiev uh, for quite some time, if not indefinitely, um, means that we should be doing that. So one could, one could imagine that as this drags on, and if the Russians are, you know, just convinced that they can uh, just bloody it through, uh, we keep standing behind the Ukrainians as long as they're standing. So that's one possible um, scenario. Um, but, you know, the, the just thing a, that— a point yeah. of clarification on, on the arming option. Yeah. And obviously, just in the last few days, there's been a number of announcements of various countries, including ones we wouldn't normally expect, like Sweden, kind of sending, um, and Germany for that matter, Germany. Um, any, ta any tank weaponry and other, other, I don't know if we call them advanced weaponry, but they're not small arms. They're more than that. Yes. So, but the question is, I mean, how does that, how does that get to the Ukrainians if Kiev is under siege? And I, I'm sort of confused about... Is this getting to them now? Who is actually getting these arms and who is then translating that into military a action? It's a little bit unclear to me how that works. A couple of things. Uh, Kiev is not yet surrounded. This is one of the big screw-ups on the Russians' part. Um, if this was at all to work, they needed to have like a much better plan. It's, it's testament to the fact that they didn't anticipate this working out, the kind of resistance they had. Um, but they, they needed to, uh, if they were going to do this and make Kiev fall and were taking this seriously, uh, they would have committed a lot more troops and been much more methodical about it um, and surrounded Kiev by now. Maybe not by now, but soon in any case. Um, 
They could still, though, surround Kiev in the coming yes. weeks. Yes, they could. Um, the striking thing about, about uh, say, the siege of Vukovar is that arms were still getting to them. Um, because, you know, a, a siege and, you know, you're not, you're not, it's not a walled city and it, you don't have soldiers all around it. It's much bigger and it's porous. You have, uh, you're smuggling, basically. So you smuggle stuff in. Yeah. Um, you know, again, Ukraine's a huge country. That's the other thing people should remember. It's really massive. Um, and uh, the parts closer to the Polish border, for example, are, um, you know, again, you could, you could set up staging grounds there. Uh, obviously, uh, the Russian Air Force would definitely try and disrupt this. So that becomes part of the war, is how do, you, how do they get the arms to the people besieged in the city? Um, and, uh, you know, as these things grind on, uh, you know, it's not, it's not 24-7 firebombing. There are ceases, there's pauses. Uh, there's disgruntled soldiers, there's bribing, you know, how the, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. just how these things go. So yeah, you, you, just, you can do this. Um, the, uh, like I said, you know, the Russians could choose any sorts of ways to try and stop this, to deter uh, the West from continuing to do this. Um, I didn't confirm this before, the, um, before this episode, but I'll say it out there because even if it's not true, it's something that could become true, is that all they have to declare is that if, if we find that, that Western arms are killing Russian soldiers, we hold the Western powers responsible for that. You do that with a nuclear threat, and well, then we're in a, a whole different ballgame, and you know, how do you measure these threats, and what does it mean? You know, dangerous, kind of scary, incredible, I don't know. Uh, and you know, uh, it's all about how far the Russians choose to escalate and what they, they choose to do. I, I still remain fairly certain that they will not attack anything in NATO because that would just cause a cataclysm and just it's not going to happen. I, I don't think they're insane. Um, but they can do all sorts of stuff within Ukraine to harass and just so that's part that becomes part of the war. Um, but but, you know, I just wanted to say the other thing that I was saying. So this was I think that's a strategic view of, hmm. you know, if you're to look at this. But the part that that I wasn't quite ready for and I'm sort of now um, starting to wrap my head around is, is really the, the transformation that's come over the Europeans. You said it yourself, you know, they're, they're arming now. But the, the, the mentality and how they're talking is it's, it's different. It's fundamentally different. Um, I think the Biden administration shares a lot of that because they, they, um, they're, they're very much, I think, you know, in the sort of a same mental space, if you will, as the Europeans, or at least their sort of uh, mental map of the world as, is, as it was and should be. Is, is, I think, very closely aligned to the Europeans. And so I, the thing that struck me is how, how quickly the Europeans have gone nuclear, if you will, in almost every sort of dimension that's available to them. Not nuclear in the sense of, of you know, uh, threatening hmm. nuclear weapons, but this sanctions package was so quick uh, and so thoroughgoing and so savage, uh, I, I, I was taken aback by that. I was taken aback by the transformation in Germany that now they're committing to spending over the you know, medium term, uh, a good amount of money on rearming. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the, the sense of cohesion, but also just the sense of like white hot, furious anger among the Europeans. And again, I mentioned this opening of, of, uh, of uh, you know, the International Criminal Court uh, investigation into the war. Uh, that too, in a lot of ways, is a, is a kind of nuclear option when you think about it. Because if they, if they end up going there, and if, if as I suspect, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be readying a case that may include charges of, of uh, certainly charges of war crimes uh, that would go all the way up to Putin, but they could escalate that up all the way to the, you know, the, the, the genocide char charge. I, I'm 
very much speculating. Maybe that's not in the cards. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if, if that's where they're going, um, I, I, I was not ready for that. And, and I guess the, 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 my sort of working hypothesis of this right now is that uh, in a way, you know, Putin did with this war, you know, he started it while a UN Security Council debate over the war was happening, that United Nations Security Council chair is Russia at this point. They literally started it in the midst of it. Like, I, you can't take a bigger crap on, on everything that the Europeans hold dear than what Putin's done. And I think that helps explain this. It's a kind of righteous fury that, that I just did not imagine the Europeans capable of. And I think you see that but, in the Biden mm. people as well. Like it's it's you can't take something that is most sacrosanct to them, which is this idea of moral progress, I think, and that peace and understanding and the rest of this, you can build a better world around this stuff. Um, and Putin's just it's it, this is a rebuke to everything they stand for, which I think helps explain some of this, 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 um, this stuff. So, you know, then when you ask the question, what does it look like in two months if this is going on like this on and on? Um it's possible that, that, that the Europeans cool off after the, the shock of what's just happened to them, but maybe not. Uh, I, you know, what's striking about some of the rhetoric coming out of this is the, is the sense of a kind of almost holy war, uh, which, you know, to me is alien. Mm. I, I don't think about it in those terms, but there, it's, it's striking how quickly, uh, how, how hard the Europeans were provoked by this, um, and 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 that's a uh, that's an element to watch as well. I think there's an element to watch about what this does in the medium to long term for European cohesion. You know their ideas about security, their ideas about the world, how they how they they go from here. And I think there's a lot that that is possible that could happen here. But it's also I think important to to keep in mind then that that you know what this dynamic with Russia is heading towards. Um, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I was writing about the incommensurability of sort of Putin's worldviews with, with the worldviews of, of, you know, what we hold dear in the Monday note from last week. Um, and, and, and in a weird way, uh, yeah, I think, I think that, that that's dawned on, on a lot of people in Europe in a way that's just made them uh, unbelievably angry uh, in a way that they're not, they're not thinking about this in terms of strategy anymore, it feels like. Um, I feel like for a lot of Europeans, this has become a regime change war. Um, hmm. They're not looking for Putin to back off as much, at least right now, a time of recording. I think the, the kind of the way policy is going, it's just, it's not just make it stop, but like, no, you know? Um, and that yeah. then makes, makes me think, you know, what is it, again, going back to the question of what does it look like afterwards? Let's say he backs down. He's got, you know, presumably the sanctions, maybe the sanctions against a central bank go off and the economy doesn't completely implode. Uh, but what sanctions stay on? What Western businesses return to Russia after this if Putin's still in power? Um, energy companies have been divesting their holdings and partnerships with Russian energy companies. Today, that was another big story that happened. Do they go back if Putin's in place? Um, Probably not. And then, uh, you know, it, it's it, then, I mean, you start thinking even more, you know, broadly, what does that world look like if Putin's still in place? Um, 
and uh, you know, China has not been fully backing them, but has also you know been gingerly abstaining from condemning. Um, they're watching and seeing all of this, but there's a huge void to be filled there, especially with energy companies, with like raw minerals companies and stuff like that. The Russians are going to be very dependent on the Chinese. So that's another thing to watch, I think, going forward is the creation of like a, a serious dependence of a, of a otherwise economically poor but very resource-rich continent-sized country with nuclear weapons. So that's the other thing to watch, you know, as this evolves, if it lasts as long uh, as, uh, as you were suggesting with the siege and the rest of that, um, whether uh, I... I, I, I I find it hard to, you know, you can sometimes game these things out and start to like try and like come up with a picture of what the world looks like after. And oftentimes you're wrong, but then you adjust your, 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 your priors as time goes on. I find it so hard to imagine what this looks like after. Uh, the whole yeah. sort of lay of the land feels like it's shifting in massive and tectonic ways. Um, and, you know, I said regime change war. I mean, I think the, the, the best bet is obviously we're not going to regime change and we're not going to send, you know, special forces to try and kill them in Moscow. It's, like, it's not happening. Uh, none of that. We're not going to start a nuclear war. That's suicidal. Um, so the hope is, is that, like, they create a situation on the ground, economic situation in Russia, uh, where literally just everything implodes. Um, and... You know, maybe they're hoping that 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 someone in the inner circle would be like, okay, this is he's crazy. He's taking us down, complete a path of destruction, uh, and just put a bullet in him and just remove him. You know, and this doesn't mean that it'd be like a democratic uh, uprising and a democratic Russia would would emerge, but presumably a a chastened and still belligerent, you know, and still autocratic and authoritarian and military minded Russia, but but a different one. Um, and one could imagine that going one set of ways or a different set of ways. I don't know. That's it for the main episode, dear listeners. Please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe, if you haven't yet, to get access to the rest of the conversation. See you in the bonus.